everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Asha Ely, who has an amazing story to tell us. Uh, Welcome to our show. Hi, David. Nice to meet you. And also, I guess I'll introduce LaShondra as well, um, who was uh, Asha's life coach, as we're going to learn uh, through our, our short little journey here. So, so Asha, why don't you set the stage here and tell us kind of um, maybe big picture of what happened, and then we can drill down a little. Yeah, absolutely. So the big picture is I was wrongfully accused of a crime in 2016, and I was and still am fighting for my innocence. I became licensed and went to law school while out on bail, literally. And um, I'm provisionally licensed in California now. I've passed the bar and I'm awaiting my bar admission. Um, I've been practicing provisionally for about a year and a half and really reaching out to the community and trying to be an activist as much as possible. Um, And that's where I am now. And and so how did you get here? How did I get? Well, to to this point. So what happened, basically? Um, what were you accused of? Uh, yeah. What are the circumstances of okay, that, to um, the extent that you can tell us? Yeah, no, no problem. Okay, so the charges that I was charged with, the first was conspiracy. Uh, the second was assault with a deadly weapon. And the third was uh, first-degree residential burglary, believe it or not, of a home that I was living in. Um, the circumstances giving rise to those charges, I lived in a home shared with two roommates. There was a night when that home was broken into, um, an armed assailant with a, a mask and a gun. Um, there was a struggle over the firearm. The firearm was discharged into the ceiling. And at that time, uh, one of my roommates, I was the person who called the police. I called a number of times. Uh, he was one of those people that what they're saying is basically true, but they're misleading. So his first statement to the police was, she didn't even call the police. I think she had something to do with this. And what he meant by that was because the ambulance came, because they thought there were injuries because there was a fire, because the the gun had fired, they sent an ambulance. And the police, because it was such a inconsequential crime, I guess, they didn't even send police. We called them a number of times, the police never came. So he's like, oh, she called the ambulance, but she didn't call the police. So that became a point of contention and started this kind of rumor mill. At the time, and actually still, Um, My dad happened to be a government official, so he came to the house that morning and trying to figure out what's going on, what happened, and they're saying, oh, it's her fault, she must have left her door unlocked, she must have had something to do with this. It just became um, one of those things where you just kind of try to figure it out and you start pointing fingers and saying things. So then he's basically like, look, she lives here, she pays her rent, I don't understand what the problem is, 
long story short, we get jumped. So there's five people and they beat up my dad, they beat me up. So that became a big issue too, because as I said, he was um, a public figure. So at that point, the charges come out, the news stories come out, um, so-and-so's daughter uh, attempts murder, so-and-so's daughter stages burglary, so-and-so's daughter, um, what did they say? Oh yeah, beats man with baseball bat. I mean, the stories just came crazy. We did meet with a few uh, attorneys initially, but from my parents' standpoint, because I was innocent, because I wasn't a public figure, they figured it would blow over. So we were initially told, you need to make a statement to the police and to the press. You need to address these false accusations. You need to kind of really jump on this before the story gets whatever. I didn't know anything about that at that time. So yeah, we didn't make a statement. Um, so fast forward to, I'd say, June of that year. So maybe six months later, I get arrested. I'm charged with the charges that I gave you. And um, that began my journey through the criminal justice system. So let me see, my first attorney, um, super funny story. He, uh, I met him online and he turned out to be a complete like scam artist. Like his website disappeared after he took our money. So we lost like $5,000 with him. But the only advice he gave me before he absconded with our money was one, get recommendation letters so that we can, you know, put together a packet and tell them why to dismiss this. So I did that. And he also told me, Juries like married people more than single people. So if we go to trial, make sure you're married. So as a funny story, I, I still am married. So he did help me find the one, I guess. But um, yeah, I definitely got married. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was all good. That's all he was good for. The state bar has still been looking for him to this day. Um, so my next attorney was my one of my law professors, believe it or not. Um, as I said, I'm first year of law school and I'm out on bail. Um, I know you mentioned in one of your, your uh, questions before that you were thinking about the social stigma. And I would say in law school, that was where you felt it the most. I mean, I can remember starting a mock trial team and we are in Vegas night before the competition and the rumor mill's going and people were like, oh my God, she's out on bail. She's a criminal. Whole team up and quits the night before the competition. Everybody's like, are you even allowed to have left the state? How are you in Vegas right now? I mean, People have said all kinds of really cruel things. I've been told you don't have the right to represent our school. You don't have the right to be here. I mean, there's a lot of vitriol, a lot of cruelty that I endured throughout that period, but still came out. So got it done. Um, my law school professor was really great. The first thing he did um, was get the burglary charge dismissed. So now we're two charges left. So it's like, okay, cool. What's next? And at that point, this is where I think it's really important for a lot of people to understand your attorney, you need your attorney more than your attorney needs you. And your attorney is always going to be more loyal to his colleagues than he'll ever be to you. So even though he's an amazing professor, amazing lawyer, um, he had gone to school with the, um, with the prosecutor. They went to the same alma mater. They're very close. And I'm thinking we're on a wave of victory because he's already got one of the charges dismissed. And he tells me, look, you're too good a person to end up in prison. I, I mean, I don't know. It's possible I could lose. I don't know if if that happened, I would just I would just throw up. I would feel terrible. So are you sure you don't want to consider a deal? If you consider a deal, you probably won't even have to do jail time. But if we go to trial and we lose, you could face 12 years of prison. So this is the part of the story that I'm actually really um, ashamed about because I understand why I did it, but I would never caution anyone to do it now. So I went ahead and said, okay, I'll take the deal. Let's do that. And of course, the deal means 
both sides get something. So he said, well, what do you want? He said, hmm, okay, well, I would love it if you'd stop making up stories about my family in the media. That'd be great. So he was like, okay, cool. We'll just do, you know, a thing. If you take the plea, you'll do probation, no jail time. And then at the end of it, you know, they won't put out any press releases, nothing like that. Within two hours of that conversation, uh, two things happened. One, I watched my mom, like the color just drained from her face. She looks like I've just failed her in life. She said, How can you plead something you didn't do? I can't believe you did that. She's just broken. I'm feeling like I wish I could take this back. Second thing that happened, look at my phone. Google is just top to bottom, whole first page. So-and-so's daughter is pled guilty, convicted, blah, blah, blah. Literally the DA's office had the press release printed before even the deal was done. So they completely, um, yeah, lied about everything. So that was the turning point in my case where I'd say I was ready to fight the system. I, I realized at that point, you couldn't trust them. They just, all they do is lie. So, and that's aside from the tampered evidence and things like that, but I'll get to that. So at that point, I told my professor, hey, can we withdraw the plea? And I couldn't understand why he didn't want to do it. He told me I didn't have the grounds to do it. He told me, no, you can't. Those never get granted. There's no way. It's impossible. And so that was when we kind of separated and he kind of did his own thing. And I was kind of on my own. And believe it or not, I put in the, uh, the motion to withdraw the plea and the judge granted it. It was miraculous, but it happened. And then at that point, that brought us to about, I think it's like 2019, almost 2020 at this point. And so that started the series of other problems. So now, okay, I've got two charges left. I've got to figure out what to do. I'm getting ready to represent myself. And how am I going to go to trial when there's pages and pages on the DA's website and everywhere else that I'm convicted and, I'm, and I already pled guilty? So when you come to, um, when you look at a plea withdrawal, it's like a legal fiction. It's like it didn't happen. Like uh, Cinderella's carriage turns back into a pumpkin. So you go back in time, kind of to where you were at arraignment, and there's no plea. So I'm constantly telling the DA's office, like, hey, you got to take this press release down. I'm not going to get a fair trial. And that's when I got, actually was lucky enough to have a meeting with Gascon in uh, the beginning of 2020. And I know, I don't know what your guys' stance, on, stance is on this, but the rhetoric I hear is that he's letting all the killers and rapists go free. I don't know if that's true, but I know for me, I was a law student with no criminal record and he did take the press release down, but he didn't do literally anything else. He was like, tell me all the stuff the prosecutor's doing wrong, put it in a, in a paper, you know, let me know, email it to me. And I did that and he literally never heard from me again, never did anything. So I do not believe that he's letting the criminals go free or anything because I know from personal experience, that wasn't my experience. But what happened with that, that um, list of, of grievances, if you will, kind of came together into a prosecutorial misconduct motion which I both submitted to the court and then also submitted to the State Bar of California. Um, I don't know if your, your viewers are familiar um, or your listeners, but one thing that you can do to really get oversight into the legal profession, if you have an attorney that's, you know, believe you believe isn't doing something right, is report it to the State Bar. It's very easy to file a complaint. They're the overseeing body that monitors them and will discipline them. And in my case, the prosecutor on my case actually was investigated by the State Bar. And then they got him kicked off the case. So that was good. I got another prosecutor at that point. And at that point was when I really decided, okay, I'm going to represent myself. This is, this is the, the path that I want to take. Um, I would say regarding self-representation, there are a lot of benefits. And let me see. 
among those, the first one for me, um, if you can't afford an attorney and you tell the, the court that you can qualify to have a finding of indigency, meaning you're kind of financially destitute. If you are so financially destitute, the court will really pay for fees for you, get all of your documents, but they'll also assign you a private investigator. So you'll have someone who can go out and interview witnesses. They can challenge parts of the complaint or the charges that are not right. Like, no, that's not what happened. Go talk to so-and-so and he'll tell you this. So they can gather evidence for you and really help you fight the case or the story that the district attorney's office has either fabricated in my, ca my case or assumed based on the evidence that they have. Um, in my case, there were audio recordings that were tampered with, there were fraudulent consent forms, there were um, there was exculpatory evidence that was being hidden. So for me, there's, um, there's a compendium of expert witnesses that the court has available, and you can get them appointed at no cost to you, the court will pay for them, and they will work on your case. So for me, I had two audio forensics experts that were able to analyze audio recordings in my case. They found that they were all tampered with, that they were spliced, pieces were cut out, that they were not able to be relied upon in a court of law. What's unfortunate is they actually still got to use them as evidence at trial, but they didn't win, so it didn't work, didn't help them anyway. But um, that was one really cool thing, because if you have a private attorney, and let's say you pay them $20,000, and you need an audio forensic expert, if they have to shell out $5,000 for that person or that expert, then it's really coming out of the money that you paid them, so you're going to need to pay again. So it's less likely that a private attorney might do it. But if you're representing yourself and the state is going to fund that expert to do the work, you really have access to more recent, more resources to fight your case. So for me, um, representing myself, I had like whole defense team. And that made it to where it was possible to keep fighting this, these charges. So um, those were among the benefits that I found. It can be really daunting, I will admit. But one good thing, too, is that it's an unqualified right. So if you get in over your head and you want to go back to having an attorney, it's not undoable. You just say, I want a lawyer now. So um, it's 2020, representing myself. We've gotten one prosecutor kicked. We've gotten one charge kicked. And we're going through, you know, pretrial motions. I don't think that much happened. Yeah, the pandemic happened. So really, I didn't think we even had that many court dates that year. <laughs> and then uh, 2021 happens. We've got a new prosecutor. We've got... Um, Oh yeah, I had a whole bunch of motions, suppression hearing motion, um, a 995 motion. These are like, like if you go to my website, there's a whole bunch of lists of, of motions that you can file. And even if you're not an attorney, there's templates everywhere. If you're ready, if you're able to stay just one lesson ahead of whatever and keep looking it up and researching, you can really figure out how to get these motions heard. At that point, the judge will allow you to bring in witnesses and you kind of get like a series of little mini trials before the big trial, which will really bring in, no, this is false, this is false. And they can start to break down the thing so that if you get to trial, it's not such a big chunk that you have to work through. Um, fast forward to, I guess, 2022. And that was my trial. That was in February. That was so fun. Um, got to have LaShondra be at the bench with me. And um, she, was my, she was my jury consultant, but the judge, uh, he fell in love with her. So she just got to stay with me the whole trial. And uh, there's even an instance when I was arguing with the prosecutor because she was withholding information about a witness's contact. And the judge was really, he was being unfair in my opinion. And I got argumentative with him and he was getting ready to hold me in contempt. And he looks at LaShondra and she's like, stop, stop, stop. And he's like, listen to your co-counsel. And so she just immediately came like, another lawyer in the court. He just, he really had the utmost trust in her. And it was, there were so many little fun moments that 
it almost didn't feel like um, the trial of my life, even though it kind of was. Um, so yeah, so it ended in a hung jury, uh, 10 votes for uh, not guilty, two votes for guilty. And that means they have the right to either dispose of the case and come up with some type of disposition to get it done, or they can just do it all over again. And in my instance, I was definitely public enemy number one, because I've already gotten a couple of the prosecutors in trouble, I've gotten some weak evidence thrown out, really kind of embarrassed their office a little bit. Um, so we went to disposition court and we were supposed to figure out a disposition and they're like, no, she can just plead guilty to everything. And they did nothing. So they're like, okay, you're going all the way back to the beginning. So I want to say at this point, I'm working with, um, Unite the People. Um, it's a nonprofit. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they do a lot with, um, wrongful incarcerations, wrongful convictions, and, um, shout out to Cesar McDowell and Mitch McDowell. Um, you should, you should probably interview them, by the way. They're pretty awesome. I have. Um, <laughs> oh, you have? Shut up. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh. I'm working with them. I've really found a tribe. I've really found a, a place where I feel at home. And at that point, it was really a good time since things have slowed down that I could start to really take care of my body. There are a number of surgeries I needed to get done that I hadn't been able to. I had attended over 200 court appearances at this point over six years. And it's mid-November and I have a few surgeries scheduled. So my home judge has at this point given me um, permission to appear remotely because I've had surgery or I'm going to have surgery. And then um, I'm like, okay, cool. Then my judge up and goes on vacation for Christmas. And the new judge either wasn't abreast of the situation or just wanted to be difficult. And she actually told me I couldn't appear remotely and said that if I didn't come in, keep in mind this is four days after I've had hip surgery, that she's going to issue a bench warrant for my arrest. So on January 3rd, just three days before I got to meet you um, and why I had to cancel, I was actually remanded into custody, wheelchair and all. And um, that was probably the most egregious thing that's ever happened um, with, con with connection with my case. Um, people were up in arms about it. They were screaming it was a civil rights issue. Um, so I didn't have to stay there very long, but it was a good eight days. So I'm very, very blessed to be back out on the outside and Actually, after that situation, it garnered a lot more support for my cause. So now I went from having no lawyer to having six or seven people that want to be helping this case. So I'm like, hey, yeah, I don't have to do it by myself. I've been working on it so far. But yeah, so um, I'm very encouraged by that. And um, just so you know, I had a good reason for not being there the first time. <laughs> just a slight excuse. Come on, you know. <laughs> We've interviewed people from in custody before. I was thinking about that. I so was, but I didn't even know how to, I didn't have the phone thing set up yet. I couldn't even call my mom yet. So I, yeah, that would have been a stretch for me. Um, so I, I want to back up because, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've, I've been around the block long enough to kind of understand how this stuff works, but for those yeah. who don't I mean what it, it it just seems incredible that this thing spiraled to the point where it is now um and do you have a sense for why that happened yeah um okay for me I know that it had a lot to do with my father which this is my story not his so I'm not going to talk about him that much but um he was a public figure so in every news article, it was so-and-so's daughter this, so-and-so's daughter this. It wasn't me the subject, it was him the subject. 
So I believe that that was largely the impetus. It was a, a thing that allowed that prosecutor to make a name for himself. And so it's unfortunate that it went that way. And I do know also that with law enforcement, when they're looking to find the answer, they want to get it and be done. So once they've decided this is where we're going, it's easier for them to try to find evidence to support their theory than to really look at what the evidence is presented. So, so I, I can't- At this you. point, this is a case that started seven years ago. Yes. Um, there's been a trial where the jury uh, was split, but it was 10 to two for uh, not guilty. Correct. And, um, and they haven't dropped it. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, right? And it's funny because I actually, um, when you are self-represented, you get a standby attorney, someone to be there in case you really screw up. And um, he had a conversation with the prosecutor. They didn't know that I heard it, but I totally did. And it was funny because he said, why don't you just let this go? This isn't an important case. And she's like, no, I can't do it. She's got to plead to something. I'm not allowed to. And it was like, I don't know what their process is, but I do know in that office, it's like, there's something about, they don't want to dismiss anything. They don't want to let stuff go. And I think... I don't know what their, I wish I knew what their motivations were, but they do not want to let this go. And it's been very unfortunate, very, very unfortunate. So I'm, I'm really curious as well, you know, you're, you're in your first year of law school when, when this started. Um, and so at what point did you really go, okay, I guess I can just represent myself here. <laughs> um, well, like I said, that was when I had the falling out with my professor, and I kind of saw that nobody's coming to save you. I mean, both my parents actually were in law enforcement. They couldn't really advise me when the charges came out. In fact, they were the ones who were like, no, talk to the investigators, talk to the police. They're your friends. They are so never your friends, ever. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of laughable. I'm like, you were a cop for how many years? Why would you tell me to talk to them? <laughs> so, and too bad I hadn't had criminal law yet. So I didn't know either. Um, they, they can help me. My favorite professor, like I said, I've watched him command a classroom and the things that he knows. I was like, if I could get him to help me on my case, which I did, which was like a dream. I was like, oh, I'm good now. He's going to save me. And he, I think, honestly, I think he could have, but he, he didn't save me. He, he almost saved me. And then he like fell back. So I don't know if there's, um, yeah, anyway, I won't, I won't address that. But yeah, no one was coming to save me. So it, it depended on me. And I think I would tell other people, it's easier for the system to railroad you when you're just this inanimate, inanimate quiet object and someone else is speaking for you. It's like you become a bargaining chip. But if you stand up and you say no, because you, you know what happened. You actually know what happened. So you have a knowledge that surpasses anybody else in the courtroom. And if you're able to get that knowledge and your truth out there, you're in a better position to really fight. So when does this come back now? When does it come back now? Like when do I have court again? Yeah. Um, we have a trial date set for March, March 8th. Um, we'll be doing jury selection again. Um, yeah. So that's, that's where we're at at this moment. But actually, I'm pretty sure there'll be a couple of continuances. Because like I said, after the whole wheelchair incident, um, a few people are getting together to draft a writ of habeas. Um, which of course you probably know what that is. Anytime there's a wrongful incarceration, it's drafted. Um, in my case, even though I'm now out, they're going to do it for the $300,000 bail, which was wrongfully put against me. So they're going to try to work on that. And whenever a writ is issued, 
the um, appellate court actually puts a hold on the case in the superior court because they now have full jurisdiction over it. So until they review that, then um, you know there'll be no action. And then also we've gotten a few emails from some attorneys, like I said, that are looking to get involved and be a dream team, if you will, I guess. So um, yeah, I'm really looking to not have to fight the second trial by myself, hopefully. Um, but if I have to, uh, we'll get it done. So what have you learned from all of this? What haven't I learned? Um, let's, well, about everything. Okay, I've learned that our criminal injustice system is a very scary, very dark place. I've learned that unfortunately, the presumption of innocence is absolutely non-existent. It's a tenant of our constitution, a tenant of our legal system, but the world has completely forgotten about it. Until you are convicted, unless and until, there is no reason why people should be stigmatizing you, ostracizing you from society, you know, whatever. But um, more than that, what's really unfortunate is if you are charged with a crime, it's very important for you to decide right then and there what your plan of action is, because once you're charged, there's no winning. If you fight it all the way and say you're acquitted at the end, you, you've gotten your freedom back, but you will never get those years back. The stress that you've put on your body and your emotional system, it's still there and you're going to suffer those side effects. If you take a plea, you are now a criminal for the rest of your life. If you know you're guilty and you go to trial and get convicted, well, then you've lost the time and you, you're a criminal for the rest of your life. So those are really your only options. And it's really unfortunate. So there's just no winners when people are charged with a crime. Nobody wins. And it's, it's really devastating. And how does this inform you about your upcoming career, hopefully? Well, in terms of the clients that I've worked with recently, it allows me a level of empathy and understanding that I think most attorneys do not have to be able to say, I've been where you are, technically I am where you are. Um, I worked with, uh, I did a pro bono case over at the, uh, the LAX courthouse, I want to say a year ago. And um, it was a mental health case, um, violent crime. And I remember I bonded with the defendant on a very unique level. He would always ask me, how do you, why are you so nice to me? How do you always know like what it is? And, I, and I'm just like, I'm not being nice. I just, I know what you need. I, I understand. I understand that you need to tell your story. I understand how you need to get your story out there. I understand how it feels. And um, it made it to where it was very easy to work with him. It was very easy to get all of the information I need. Whereas I find um, a lot of times attorneys get clients and instead of your attorney being your confidant, they feel like another adversary. They assume things. They try to fill in the blanks. They don't allow you to get everything out there. And then you, you begin to even feel like you can't trust them all the way because they have their own motivations if they're financial or if they're, you know, they don't want to do all the work it's going to take to prove you're innocent. They want to clear you and move on to the next. Um, it's very important to understand that these are human beings. We're, we're not numbers. We're not bargaining chips. And having gone through what I've gone through, I understand that more than anyone. Now, it seems like you've had a good experience being a self-represented uh, litigant. Um, <laughs> Although I can tell you, um, most of the time it doesn't go well. Um, no, no, <laughs> no. And see, that's why I always do. I always have the caveat: do it if, if you know, like you know. Um, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna use an example um, with my the pro bono case. Okay, so he had this thing. He was obsessed. He said that the gang member guy had stabbed a hole in his bicycle tire, 
And he was obsessed with saying that we got to get the bike, the police disposed of the bike. And I couldn't understand why that mattered, but it mattered because we had to show that the reason he came at the guy was because the guy had a weapon. And the only way we could prove that is by getting the bike suitable tire that had the stab. So he represented himself for a period of time before I met him and he got a private investigator. The investigator found out where the bike was. They got it, yada, yada, yada. If there's something like that, that only you know and you get, get in there, get the tools you need, and then jump out, <laughs> you know, if you can. And it's not that simple, but it really is. The Fred waiver is two pages, you sign it, fill it out. Um, if there's something you can do to stop yourself from being railroaded and you see the opportunity to let our, our resources work for you, do it. Um, yeah, and I and just want to jump in really oh, quick just to ahead. kind of add, um, because from the outside looking in, it's a very different dynamic. Um, and as people are deciding, you know, should I fight this myself? Do I have, you know, an attorney and a lawyer? Um, there's a lot of different variables. And I see you, you have to be a very, very strong person to almost wear two hats, because not only are you fighting for your freedom and you're fighting for everything you want and you your rights and you know your truth and what you realize is going on but you're also having to be in this intent trial and case and um you know you have prosecutors and stuff that are really gonna bring out anything and everything they can to paint you as a villain and sometimes you don't even know the information or the tricks or the strategies they're gonna use because it comes out of left field because they're just trying to make sure they have anything and everything against you. So I think as you're deciding what is the best case scenario, um, you really want to know yourself because as I was sitting there with Asha and we, you know, went through the case, there are moments when it does get intense and emotional and you're like, can I fight this myself? Because it is a lot against you and they're going hard and you're hoping 12 strangers are hearing your side of the story and you're hoping you're telling every part of the story that is important because you know, your mind might be racing, you're trying to figure out how to, you know, hold it together, but then also how to, um, you know, cross-examine people and how to ask the right questions and how to really get your case being seen on multiple levels. So I think um, in that regard, you have to understand it is going to be a very emotional time because your freedom could be on the line. Your, um, you know, your life could be on the line. There's a lot of different things that are going through your mind. And so just recognizing how can you wear both hats and what support do you have at that time? And, you know, Asha, um, you know, had her mom there all the time. You know, I was able to awesome. be there, but Asha had to do a lot of the heavy lifting because it's like, I don't know the law. Like, you know, your mom might know some things, but ultimately like, you you're going to know a lot more than probably any of us and you're going to know your story so it was very advantageous that she understood the law enough so anyone that does go into this i think it would be important to understand some laws um asha is just uh just really just a killer not in like that sense but just the way she's able to attack um things that come at her and she's able to really file motions and she was able to get a lot of things done that maybe the average attorney or lawyer isn't going to do because she understands hey i'm fighting for my life and there are rules and regulations that if you really try to fight them you can but a lot of attorneys might not because they're really just trying to you know give you um, a situation where it's like hey just take the deal you know because they don't know if they're gonna win or sometimes they might not want to step on other people's toes because they might have friends or they don't want to make the judge mad and they don't want to do certain things that you know as a person you know being there being charged like hey if you say this or if you're you take this approach this may help and you don't seem to be you know your lawyer might not seem to be 
getting that information. So just from the outside looking in, there were a lot of powerful moments that I, you know, saw Asha had to go through in just carrying the case. Um, but then just the strength you have to have when you see things are going to the left or they're bringing in all sorts of yeah. information that you're not ready for. So yeah, I, almost I just wanted forgot. to add. <laughs> I almost forgot what did happen around 2020, but no, 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 it was in trial, it was in trial. Um, we had we had COVID, so um, the judge was, oh, sorry, this is totally random, it's just an anecdote. Do you want me to go? go, go <laughs> oh, um, yeah, anyway, so the judge on my case was hard of hearing. So he had an issue with masks because he couldn't hear you well. So the litigants, he wouldn't let us wear masks. And sure enough, I'd say maybe at the end of the prosecution's case, I got COVID. Another juror got sick too, but anyway, you would think right after the pandemic, nobody would think, okay, someone has COVID, this is an issue. But if you're on trial, everything is an issue. So I'm out, it's maybe 10 days that I was out. The district attorney sent two armed investigators to my doctor's office to investigate my doctor's note, to review my COVID results, to actually like, I mean, in violation of HIPAA, violation of Fifth Amendment, everything. I mean, thank God I wasn't faking, right? But it was just crazy. And I felt such a violation. I felt so like, you're never free. You have no, you can't even be free to be sick. It was just, it was disgusting. And I remember telling the judge about it. The judge was like, well, she felt that there was a risk that you might be putting a fraud on the court. So I authorized this, that, and the other. It was like, so you're clearly not impartial. You're clearly not on my side either. It's like the, when you think about big brother and you think about the system, you think about how much information they can attain about you at any given moment, moment, it's, it's terrifying, utterly terrifying. But anyway, that was another reason why I was kind of at trial as far as powerful moments, because the first thing I thought was, I can't wait to tell the jury about this. They're going to see this injustice. And the judge said, if you mention one word of this, I'm going to take this away. I'm going to do this. So it was like, I want to scream and fight on my behalf, but I'm being silenced. But I'm also being effed with behind the scenes. So it was just, there's so much. All right. Well, we're out of time for this segment. Um, this has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Asha Ely, who has an amazing story that I, I'm sure we're going to follow up on uh, because it's uh, just so riveting. Uh, so thanks for coming uh, and sharing your story. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.